So today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32, going through to verse 52. So they, they were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the, to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him, condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He replied. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Well, good morning. Uh, thanks for listening on this um, online service. What do you reckon makes a great leader? Um, when I was at high school and, and into my early 20s, it was um, one, a good friend. Let's call him Bob. He was like one of the best friends. And everyone, he just seemed to be a natural leader. Everyone just sort of naturally followed him. And I wonder, what do you want a great leader to do for you? What do you want a great leader to do for you? Well, I wanted Bob to make me cool. Because see, everyone thought Bob was really cool. You know, Bob liked a band called The Smiths. So we all liked The Smiths. 
Bob grew his hair into a quiff, it looked really cool. And so we all tried to, I'm not doing very well, I'm afraid. All the girls fancied him. Um, pretty much any girl you um, might befriend. Well, we all soon worked out it was uh, just because they were trying to get closer to Bob. But you always just felt like hanging out with Bob. It was, it was like the best thing. It was a really good time. I think deep down, I was hoping for some of that charm, some of that popularity, some of that cool that Bob had to wear off onto me. I was hoping Bob was going to make me great like I thought he was great. Because we all want to be great, don't we? Want to be a great mate, a great work colleague, a great artist, a great mum, a great dad, a great son or daughter, a great student, a great success. We want to be on the right road, not feeling like we're taking any wrong turns. Well, today we're looking at what makes Jesus the greatest leader there ever was or ever will be. So for the next little while, join me on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus and hear him ask us that question that appears twice in this passage that Michael read for us. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? So there's an outline in the notes uh, on the side, uh, hopefully, the, the notes tab, you can find an outline there. And we'll see how Jesus is the one who chooses the way, shows us the way, and stops on the way. Chooses the way, shows us the way, stops on the way. Um, but first, uh, the, the context. What's the story so far? Where are we in Mark's Gospel? Well, in chapter 8, we saw, verse 34, that whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus' disciples have started to see that Jesus is God's rescuer king, the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah. And Jesus needs to help them now see how he's going to rescue us uh, and what it is we need rescuing from. Today's passage um, brings us to the end of a section of Mark. So Mark likes to put things together in threes, all right, um, to help make his point. Um, so three times Jesus predicts that he'll be rejected, suffer, die and be resurrected. Uh, each time Jesus makes one of those, predict those predictions, his disciples make some kind of error. And each time Jesus teaches them something about himself and true discipleship. And all of that, the, the, that three, is bookended by Jesus healing two blind men to show us um, that his disciples and that we need our eyes opening to what kind of rescuer Jesus is, what kind of rescue we need. So today we pick up the story in verse 32 on the road to Jerusalem and Jesus' first point, choosing the way, choosing the way that he knows will lead to his death. See the disciples are astonished and the others following are afraid. Why? Well because Jesus 
has already predicted twice that when he gets to the end of this road in Jerusalem, he will be handed over, killed and resurrected. Yet here's Jesus leading from the front, single-mindedly determined, marching towards his destiny, destiny, uh, willingly, purposefully heading towards terror. Have a look, verse 33 and 34. So this is Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus is going to be delivered to the religious leaders, the very people who should have been first to recognise Jesus as the Messiah, and they will condemn him to death. And not only that, they will hand him over to Romans, to Gentiles. So for Israel, throughout the Old Testament, when they faced God's wrath, God's righteous uh, judgment on them, when they were going to get their just punishment, it was often at the hands of the Gentile nations. So Jesus being over to, handed over to the Gentiles is the equivalent of being handed over to God's wrath. So why go? Why does Jesus stay on this road and call his followers to do the same? Well, remember, Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is the promised Messiah or Christ. And that means that he and God the Father are unified. They're one in purpose. They're on the same page. They've both got the same idea. So this isn't some cruel, bloodthirsty God sending his innocent son to satisfy some unreasonable demand. Now, God the Father and God the Son are both in on this. Now, we aren't uh, physically meeting today. Obviously, you're watching this on a screen. And as it turns out, um, on Friday, on, um, what day are we today? On Wednesday, it turned out um, that we wouldn't be allowed to meet together. But we had actually already proactively decided on Monday that we weren't going to meet together from this Sunday because we thought it was the most loving course of action to not gather together. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is God volunteering, choosing, opting to do what only he can do, to bring justice for all the evil, into, for all the evil in the world, and at the same time, bring God's mercy, bring justice and mercy at the same time. And Jesus is determined because he's not just teaching his followers a, a religious solution to the shadow of death that's over the world. Jesus is setting off wholeheartedly out of his own, cho own choice for Jerusalem to be the solution. He's setting off to be the solution. So Jesus chooses the way 
And now Jesus shows us the way. Jesus shows us the way. So you can imagine the 12, can't you? Walking, carrying on along the road, um, gingerly with Jesus. And it kind of sinks in that, no, no, we've not misheard him. He said it, uh, this is like the third time he said it now. He really was serious about suffering, death, resurrection, all that stuff. Well, James and John, they've got it. Well, at least they think they know things are, are coming to a head and they want to get their foot in the door early. You know, you can just imagine them kind of like, right, quick, while Peter's tying his, his sandals up, let's get in there now and ask Jesus fast. You, know, you go first. No, you go first. Oh, go on, get in there now before it's too late. Verse 35. Teacher, uh, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pretty bold, aren't they? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, when you get voted in, um, can we have the top positions in your cabinet? When you hit the big time, can we be your left and right hand men? So how do you react to that? them doing that? Do you think, good on you? First come, first serve basis. Um, first come, first, what is it? First up, best dressed. That's the word I was looking for. Or do you think, oh, they're cheeky things. How selfish. And that's how the other disciples react in it in verse 41. Probably because they didn't think of it first. Look, James and John want to be great. But don't we all? This life is full of struggles, full of evil and setbacks none of us want to be a failure we want it to be we want life to be great we want to be a great dad a great work colleague a great son or daughter i want to be a great pastor i want to be a great husband to sharon and a great dad to my children i want to be a great friend i don't want to be lonely i want to be great in a good way but what about Jesus? What does Jesus reckon to James and John's bold ambition? Well, he doesn't speak against their desire to be great. He doesn't rebuke them um, for wanting to be first. He doesn't speak against uh, rulers, the ideas of ruling or ruling. But what Jesus does do is change the definition of greatness. He does correct their thinking about what his kingdom is going to be like and how be, how to be truly great in his kingdom. Remember Jesus has been saying the kingdom of God is near in me. How are you going to be great in that kingdom? You see James and John haven't learned the lessons that have come just be just before this, we've not had sermons on these, but if you flick back later on, there's a lesson of the rich young ruler. He already had wealth and status and power, but didn't enter the kingdom of God. And they've not learned from the children who approached Jesus that they tried to send away. Those children had no status or power, but do enter the kingdom of God. So James and John were seeking security, seeking greatness in the wrong place. 
they were in seeking power and control for their security. But Jesus turns all of that upside down. True greatness, Jesus says, comes through serving. So verses 43 and 44. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. So Jesus isn't speaking against anyone having authority or leading. We, we, we are all led. We all follow someone. But what he is saying is if we have authority, we are to use it to serve. We're to rule by serving those that we oversee. And greatness is measured in leadership by how much you serve. Now, see if you can guess which world leader said this. I know that the only way to live my life is to try and do uh, what is right, to take the long view, to give of my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. I draw strength from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. That great things to hear from a Christian leader. Uh, as this leader from a world leader, sorry. As this leader began as head of state, this was their request to the public. This is what they asked of the public. Pray that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. Servant leadership. Do you know who it was? My queen and yours, Queen Elizabeth II. And that book quote is taken from a book of her reflections on her faith called The Servant Queen. See, Queen Elizabeth II has worked out what to do with her authority to serve. Jesus isn't saying be a pushover, do what everyone, anybody tells you to do, because our goal is to serve as best we can. And sometimes that means saying, no. Now, I don't want to presume to tell you how to serve in your situation, in your life. But a helpful thing to do is to recognise uh, where you are a leader in life. So maybe as a parent or as an older sibling, um, at work, in sports. And in fact, every Christian is a leader in that we are all followers of Jesus seeking to get others to follow the same road. You are the Christian leader amongst your network of non-Christian friends, family, colleagues, neighbours. So work out how you can use those roles as a leader, not to lord it over, but to serve. But the ultimate example of servant leadership is, of course, Jesus. So who is Jesus? He is the servant king. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
despite being the ruler of the universe, despite being the one for who and through who all this was made, Jesus serves by giving himself up for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2. This is Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbly humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's three ways Jesus shows his greatness in serving us. First of all, verse 38, Jesus is going to drink a cup. What's all that about? Well, throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses this language of a cup as a way of referring to his death and suffering. It's a word loaded with meaning from the Old Testament where it means suffering God's wrath. That is, suffering God's just judgment against evil. Now, people get upset about the idea of God's wrath, seeing it as him being unreasonably angry or cruel. And we have to be careful, don't we? Because the English language morphs and changes. And when we hear wrath, we can think sort of hot-tempered rage. That's, we tend to think that mean, that's what wrath means, but that's not what it means here. I mean, we have wrath. You know, we hear still stories all the time of, of evil being done and people getting away with it. And it makes us angry, not in a bad-tempered, rage kind of way, but in a settled opposition, I'm against this, I want to put this right kind of anger. That's wrath. And just think how God feels who can see all that evil and all its consequences perfectly. No stone left unturned. Imagine how he feels. See, God is good. God is loving. God is full of grace. And he is just and fair. He won't just let evil get away with it. He must, by his very nature, put things right. See, the irony is when people say I'm a, are against the idea of a wrathful God, when they, when they misconceive God's wrath, when they think it means God is cruel, he's talking about cruelty, injustice and anger, well, those things are the very thing that God's wrath is set against. So, cup. And then secondly, Baptism. Now, baptism here is the old sense of an overwhelming experience, a complete immersion in something, like a surfer being dumped by a, a three-metre wave. Jesus is going to take on the overwhelming experience of being condemned. Drinking this cup of suffering, of God's just rejection of evil, and being completely immersed in it, he's just dealing with it. That's what Jesus is doing, not just as a good example of great servant leadership, although it is that, but Jesus is going to be, to do all of that, to take on that condemnation, 
to be, verse 45, our ransom, our ransom. His, Jesus' death and suffering actually achieve something. They don't just point to something, they achieve something in reality. They pay our debt. These days we tend to associate ransom uh, with kidnappings, but here it's more the sense of um, the idea of paying the debt somebody owes to release them from slavery. That's what Jesus means when he says to James and John in verse 39, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. That is, James and John and anyone believing and trusting in Jesus, we get to have the same review, the same verdict, the same judgment as if we have already been overwhelmed in suffering and death and condemnation, as if it's already happened to us. Uh, 700 odd years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had said, um, had described it like this about God's servant. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus came deliberately, willingly, to take our place of condemnation that we deserve for our rebellion against God. He walked the road in our place to take up all the suffering of the cross so that we can enjoy all the benefits. This is the leader you want to show you the way. This is the only leader worth trusting with your life. Jesus chooses the way, the way of the cross. Jesus shows us the way, coming not to be served, but to serve. And now, as Jesus leaves Jericho, Jesus stops on the way. So as Jesus is determinedly marching towards Jerusalem, off to fulfil the most important event in the world ever, he stops in his tracks. Why? Well, for a blind beggar sitting by the side of the road. Now, it's easy for us to assume, yeah, well, of course he was a beggar, he was blind, you know. But actually, he's just another example of Israel's, of the failure of Israel's religious leaders who were so busy accusing Jesus. See, their law, which they had plenty to say about, by the way, had plenty to say about providing and caring for people exactly like Bartimaeus, and that that was a key priority of God and his law. So old Barty should never have been left to be sat at the side of the road begging. We must always beware of heartless religion that doesn't care. Well, no one else has cared, so why does Jesus stop? You get the impression that Bartimaeus is a bit 
annoying, don't you? So from verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, which you would, wouldn't you? But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. The irony is, a blind man sat by the side of the road sees more clearly who Jesus is and what he needs from him than Jesus' own disciples who were walking on the road with him. The blind man sat by the side of the road sees more clearly who Jesus is than his own disciples. In fact, Bartimaeus is the ideal disciple, a living example of what it means to repent and believe, to lose your life, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Now, I reckon I've found nine things that we can identify in Bartimaeus uh, as in a sort of best of discipleship manual, the greatest hits of Mark's gospel. Um, I'll try and share them with you by email. But have a read uh, in your growth groups, maybe, or like maybe if we're isolated, email back and forth, call each other up. Have a look at verses 46 to 52 and see how many things about Bartimaeus you can come up with. But for now, I'll just draw out three. So first of all, verse 47 and 48. Having heard about Jesus, he recognises Jesus for who he is. So son of David that he calls him, is recognising, acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, um, the, the anointed one who comes bringing God's mercy. Uh, Mark's Gospel has shown us how Jesus matches the sort of e-fit photo of the Messiah that we're given in the Old Testament. So I must ask you, have you heard who Jesus is? Do you recognise, like Bartimaeus did, that he is the Messiah, he is your rescuer, the one sent to bring us back into right relationship with God. Uh, second thing to notice about Bartimaeus, he's saved by his faith. So your faith has healed you. That word for healed there is more usually um, translated as saved. So it could be your faith has saved you. And this is the sure promise to all of us who believe, trust and believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. So Bartimaeus, like Jesus, like, sorry, Bartimaeus, like us, had nothing to offer Jesus but faith. And like Bartimaeus, like James and John, faith in him is all we need. Because if your answer to Jesus, when he asks you, what do you want me to do for you? If your answer to that question is, have mercy on me. If your faith is in Jesus, he says to you, your faith has saved you. And the third thing about I'll point out is 
if you look back to the rich young ruler in verse 41 and sorry 21 and 22 Jesus tells him to sell all he has sell all you have and follow me that's what Jesus tells the rich man but he goes away whereas old Barty here Jesus tells him to go and instead Bartimaeus follows and I reckon Mark deliberately tells us that he follows Jesus along the road to signify that Bartimaeus is joining Jesus on the way to the cross, losing his life, picking up his cross and following Jesus. So three things to take away from all this. Firstly, ask yourself, where am I looking for security? Am I looking to Jesus or am I looking to something else? Secondly, ask yourself, who do I lead in my life and how can I serve them in order to be great in God's kingdom? Where am I looking for security? Who do I lead and how can I serve them? And thirdly, like Bartimaeus, ask Jesus for mercy, have faith and follow him. Jesus is the ultimate servant, giving his life as a ransom for ours. And Jesus is the one who loves us so much that he stops in his tracks, calls us to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to leave you by the roadside curious, interested, but not interested enough to stop him going past? Or will you recognise your need for God's mercy and call out to him? Because if you do, he will save you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Jesus did not come to lord it over us, but came to serve, serve so much he offered his li own life as a ransom for ours so that we can be in right relationship with you and know peace with you. So I pray for us in our positions of leadership in life. Please help us to follow Jesus' example, to deny ourselves, be other person-centred and be servant-hearted and lead by serving and especially by serving people in practical ways during this crisis where people are isolated and vulnerable and and especially serving people by sharing the good news about Jesus with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.